The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. The title for our sermon this morning is The Resurrection and the Life, and the text is John 11. So please turn in your Bible to John 11. If you received a gift Bible this morning, that's page 523, 523. So the resurrection and the life. And if you received the booklet, you'll find notes there midway through where I wrote five movements of the text that I think will help us follow along with what we learn about the reason for the hope that lies within us this morning. John chapter 11, we first will see love beyond our comprehension when Jesus delays averting all suffering. Look in John 11, verse 1 of God's word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Let me make some observations about that phrase, Lord, he whom you love. What a wonderful thing it is that Christ loves all of his own this way. My grandfather, when he was alive, we would get together for our Italian Thanksgivings where we'd have about 60 of us in the basement at his little home on the east side of Detroit. And in those gatherings, each one of us, whatever our relationship was to grandpa, believed that we had some special relationship with him, that he loved us personally. And indeed, each believer can say this about their Lord, that you are the one that he loves. In fact, the author, humanly, of this gospel, John, describes himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And here we read a description of another one. And know this, that Jesus loves us all so personally that even if our name is not mentioned, he knows who's being referred to. So in verse 3, the one who you love is ill, and he knows immediately it's Lazarus. So verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now indeed, this illness will lead to death. So what does Jesus mean when he says that it is for something more than that? It reminds us that something greater is at stake in this passage. At stake in this passage is a revelation of who Jesus is and why we so desperately need to know who he is. So now, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha. Now here's the question that you would be asking if you've never heard this passage before. What's going to happen to Lazarus? He's sick and Jesus loves him. What will Jesus do? Will he make it in time? Will he get there to make sure that he heals Lazarus before he dies? But look at what the passage says. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So therefore, because of his love for them, when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What a paradox that is. Out of love, Jesus delays Rather than swooping in to eliminate any potential suffering, Jesus allows it to transpire. Why? Well, this passage will give us several reasons. One of them was just quoted by Jesus in verse 4. So that the Son of God may be glorified, so that Jesus may be known for all that he is, so that his power will be displayed fully. Even in our day and age today, 
if someone's life slowly slips away and their breathing stops and you're not totally sure, it can be difficult to tell when, in fact, they've died. And that's in a time and place where we have machines in a hospital bed. But in the first century, when someone passed away in a situation like that, they weren't always clear whether or not the person was, in fact, deceased. And so we have recordings historically in the first century of people who they thought had died. And remember, there's no funeral homes. There's no embalming like the way we have it today. And so if they thought someone had breathed their last, they would pretty much immediately put them in a casket and take them out to a tomb. And every once in a while, while that person was being carried out in the casket, their heart started beating. They realized they had prematurely taken them out. Now, in Jesus' day, because that did occasionally happen, Jesus is waiting on purpose to put this miracle beyond doubt. In fact, in this passage, timing will come up again and again and again, that Jesus has intentionality behind his timing. So in love, he waits two days. Let me encourage you with this reality this morning. Just like two rails on a train track always go the same direction, so the glorification of Jesus and our best interest are always going the same direction. We can always know that if God seems to delay what we think needs to be done now, that he has a reason for his glory and our good. And so Jesus delays in love, but it delays for another reason. In the Gospel of John, Jesus' commitment to the Father is unwavering. In verses 9 and 10 of this passage, he will say, when there's light, I must do the mission that I've been sent to do. So Jesus will obey the Father's will. But there's a bigger reason, which is why this text is so good for Easter. Jesus delays so that Lazarus will be long dead because Jesus has come to defeat death. So in this passage, he waits. Now let's pick up in verse 7. Then after this, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? You see, the disciples are hoping that Jesus will continue to live. They're not expecting him to face death. They're trying to preserve his life. But verse nine, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So now is the time to work. Now is the time of light. I must do my father's mission. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now in the Old Testament, the phrase slept with their fathers was a way to say someone had died, but the disciples aren't picking this up. So look in verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover, (laughs) but they're not getting it. So verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death They thought he meant taking rest and sleep. So verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, you guys aren't getting it, Lazarus has died. But for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So then Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, well, let us also go that we may die with him. Not a very hopeful trip for these disciples. Now, verse 17, we see not only movement one, that God loves us and sometimes beyond our comprehension, he doesn't work on the time schedule that we think he should, but it's actually for a wise reason. But now number two, in wisdom, Jesus even stretches our stability, builds our faith in places where it was actually crumbling. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And notice, many of the Jews had come 
to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. I want to point out something culturally so you can visualize the scene. In our Western, especially Anglo-Saxon cultures, when we gather for a funeral, we normally are sort of a stiff upper lip culture. We don't mourn very loudly or very openly. In fact, often we may even commend somebody for being strong and keeping their emotions under check. But many cultures that are not Anglo-Saxon are very different. They actually approach it with really an exuberant expression publicly of the sorrow. And so that's what you should be picturing here. In fact, it was common in the first century to hire in musicians who would come and play outside for days. Notice this is four days that he's been in the tomb and they're still outside mourning. So now verse 20, now when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's simply saying something of trust for what Jesus could have done. I don't think she's accusing him or trying to be cynical. She say that he would have had the power to prevent death. So now verse 22, but even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So she knows that Jesus is capable, but, but let's be clear here. She does not at all believe Jesus is about to raise her son from the dead. You know how we know that or her brother? Because by verse 38 and 39, when Jesus says open the tomb, Martha tries to stop him. No, no, don't open the tomb, Lord. He's been dead for four days. It's over. So don't read her verse in verse 22 as hopeful for something immediate to happen. It's just confidence in what Jesus is as a good person, that he's wonderful, that he is the son of God, but surely he can't help now. So verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, well, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Orthodox Jews in the first century believed that when you die, that's it. But then maybe millennia afterwards, you would be risen on the last day. But they had no hope of anything immediate. So she answers with the typical Orthodox position. But now we have the core of the passage where Jesus diverts that mild expectation and brings it to gospel hope. So now verse 25, and Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Notice he directs this promise to himself. It is me that is the resurrection and the life. Did you notice the word the in front of both of them? I am the one and only resurrection. I am the one and only life. And notice the and, they both come together. Whoever believes, no matter what, he shall live. That means Jesus is granting eternal life immediately and irrevocably. What he grants can never be taken. What he gives can never be lost. Verse 26, he asks Martha a question we all must grapple with today. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Martha's answer reveals that she believes Jesus is powerful, that he's the Messiah, but she doesn't understand how that could be helpful now. So look in verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming in to the world, but still no expectation of anything now. Now we move from Martha to Mary. So verse 28. When she had said this, she went out and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village. His disciple is still keeping him at bay because of the danger of his 
life being at risk, but was still in the place where Martha had met him outside. 31, when the Jews who were with him in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. But instead, verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Word for word, exactly what Martha said. Now verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Every once in a while, we lose something in translation that is just almost impossible to carry from one language to another. And here we have one of those rare moments. The Greek word being translated in English as deeply moved is a word that is used of anger, almost animal snorting anger, something of rage. And so the translations don't know what to do with it. Why would Jesus be angry? So they just go with deeply moved. But actually, indeed, something much stronger is happening in Jesus' heart. There's a righteous rage bubbling up within him at the sorrow that he sees around him because he knows its real cause. So look in verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. He burst into tears. Now it is weird that Jesus would burst into tears for Lazarus, who we know he's about to powerfully raise. So why is it that he has such righteous rage and bursting into tears at a moment like this? And the answer is because at this moment, I believe the text is telling us Jesus is not just heavy hearted over the loss of Lazarus. He is feeling and experiencing the loss that we all experience and feel at the sting of sin's full bloom, namely death. We could say it this way, at this moment, Jesus has seen every funeral that has ever happened and every funeral that ever will happen. He's seen the pain we bear at the seemingly unassailable foe of death and the seemingly irreversible sting of separation. When my cousin Aaron was 30 years old, he and his wife and their three children got in a car to pick up a friend graciously from college who was arriving at the airport. Unbeknownst to them, on the opposite side of the highway was a man who was under the influence of drugs and he lost control of his car. And he veered over to the lane that my cousin was in and he hit him head on. When his car hit my cousin's car head on, his youngest daughter was propelled from the vehicle and she instantly died. They took my cousin Aaron to the hospital, 30 years old. They performed a number of surgeries on him. They amputated. They did everything they could. But by the end of that evening, he had died as well. It was the first, though not the last, funeral that hit me that deeply and that closely. I remember when we went to the funeral, as is the case sometimes in funerals that are this shocking, there was a private viewing for the family before anybody else was able to come where they had opened the casket and they had tried to piece together the visage that once was my cousin Aaron. And the moment that I remember so well was my aunt, nearly delirious with grief, reaching into the coffin, holding her son, trying to, in some sense, be close to him again. See, when Jesus was deeply moved, he felt that. And he saw that for all of us 
for all time. He saw what Romans 5 tells us happens, where sin has come, death has come, and death has passed upon all. And facing that, Jesus now gives hope for the seemingly unassailable fall of death and the seemingly irreversible sting of separation. But I want to show you how he does so diversely to Martha and to Mary. As one pastor put it, to Martha, Jesus gives the ministry of truth. And to Mary, Jesus gives the ministry of tears. But Jesus alone is perfectly both. See, he is both the transcendent truth and the personal love of God. And that combination is totally unique to Christ and to Christianity. See, in our culture, you may get compassion and sympathy without truth. And haven't we all known people who say something to us that's correct, but without any personal love or tenderness? You see, in Christ, God has put himself into the story. And in Christ, both transcendent truth and compassionate personal love have combined. We could say it this way. Jesus is the ministry of truth because Jesus is God. And Jesus is the ministry of tears because Jesus is human. Now, this is true in ourselves personally. All of us, the needle tends to push towards one or the other. Some of us push a little more towards truth others a little more towards tears. I I know myself enough to know that I have a conservative personality and I lean towards truth, so I'm a fixer. Someone comes to me with a problem, my immediate thought is, well, here's what you need to know. But I've known other people that they lean the needle more towards tears. They're more of a feeler. When they come to you or someone like that with a problem, they immediately put their armor on you and they have empathy for you. In fact, we see this in religion. Conservative religion tends to move the needle towards truth. It's doctrinal, it's orthodox, it's dogmatic in what's right and wrong. But we've noticed liberal religion tends to lean towards tears. It's sympathetic, it's progressive, it's permissive theologically. But in Christ and in the gospel, we have them both perfectly mixed. See, ultimately, tears without truth are not only not very helpful, they're frankly disingenuous. If you're at the moment of calamity and loss and great evil has been done and it's left you in heartache, which was the case in the loss of my cousin, someone can put their armor on you and say, man, I'm really sad and I'll I'll, I'll weep with you, but I don't believe there's any heaven or hell and I don't believe there's any judgment and I don't believe there's any right or wrong. Well, then those tears make no sense. They're disingenuous. But on the other hand, if someone has only truth without tears... And you can sense that though they may know what's right, there's no personal willingness to bear it with you. And listen this morning, in Jesus we get both truth and tears because God became man. But not only do we get truth and tears, they lead to something more. So look now in verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. And a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha said to him, the sister of the dead man, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, as the King James memorably puts it, he stinketh, for he's been dead four days. You see, Martha does not believe. She just expects that it's over. But did you notice that same phrase in English, deeply moved? It's the same Greek word again. Why do we have the same word twice? Bells should be going off as readers. Where is this righteous rage coming from? Here it is. 
See, the truth that Jesus gave to Martha, she doesn't yet grasp. The tears he gave to Mary are not enough to console her yet. We need tears, we need truth, but we need more than that. We need triumph. We need a hero who triumphs over sin and death. And friend, here is our hero. You see, in verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and knowing people are listening to him pray now, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And now the man who is not only truth and tears exhibits his triumph. Verse 44, the man who died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. See, this Jesus who gives us his tears and gives us the truth is the Jesus who triumphs over the grave. In fact, as one pastor said somewhat humorously, had he not said Lazarus before he said, come out, every tomb would have spit out the dead all over the world. In his power, he rules. Now perhaps this morning you're thinking, wait, Josh, I thought the triumph of Jesus over sin and death was on the cross and in the empty tomb. And you're right, that's correct. But do you understand what's happening in this passage? You see, if you keep reading, and we will, we'll realize that Jesus raised Lazarus to secure his own death. John records seven sign miracles that Jesus performed. Each one gaining more attention, each one gaining more opposition. And this is the seventh of seven. This is the straw that breaks the camel's back. When the Pharisees find out that Jesus has raised someone from the dead, then they plot to get rid of him. Because how else can we keep our power and our place if there's a man like this? See, Jesus triumphs over sin and death on the cross and the empty tomb, but he secures it voluntarily when he chooses to raise Lazarus from the dead. Look in verse 45. Many of the Jews who'd come with Mary and Jesus and see what he did believed in him. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But then one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. And we're about to have some shrewd Machiavellian politics. Verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Let's just get rid of Jesus. Then we can keep life as it was. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied Jesus would die for the nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who scattered abroad. But he meant just get rid of them so we can keep life as it was. In verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Do you see it now? Jesus knew the only way to raise Lazarus was to bury himself. The only way to interrupt the sorrow at Lazarus' funeral is for the man of sorrows to bear it on his own body. 
Perhaps at moments in your life you've thought to yourself, well, you know what, why is there bad things in the world? Why does the world have to have suffering? Why do we have to have loss and sorrow? Can't God just wave his hand and get rid of all suffering and all sin and all death? Well, yes, but then he would get rid of all of us with it. See, it's a package deal. Therefore, the only way to take away our destruction and the sin and the death and the sorrow is for the man of sorrows to come and bear it willingly. See, Jesus raises Lazarus so that he can bury himself. Jesus performs his final miracle to set up for the ultimate miracle, the miracle of the cross. And Caiaphas, like many people, unintentionally spoke more truth than he planned to. All he meant to say was something political. If we get rid of Jesus, we'll still have a nation. But ironically, he was saying more than he realized. In fact, there is a substitute who came to die so that he could gather together the children of God scattered abroad. And that substitute was the lamb who willfully climbed the hills of Calvary. That substitute is the lion who conquered over death. That substitute is Jesus. But now in resolution, the people still wonder what Jesus will do. So in verse 54, Jesus therefore could no longer walk openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many went there. Verse 56, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Because verse 57, the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. You see, they're asking, will Jesus come to the Passover? The answer, yes, he'll come as the lamb. He comes willingly to take away the sin of the world. As one four little poem said it years ago in church history, he hell in hell laid low, made sin, he sin or threw, bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. See, Jesus' righteous rage over sin and death shows his great love for us. And his voluntary sacrifice that began after raising Lazarus and culminated in him himself being raised from the death shows that in love, instead of wiping all of us out because the wages of sin is death, Jesus instead has taken it on his own body. The one who gave tears and truth triumphed because he is the resurrection and the life. Now this morning, because we read the whole passage, you know more truth than Martha did. Don't suppress it. This morning, thousands of years later, you can experience more than Mary did. More of the ministry of tears. So don't try to suppress your sorrow. Take it to the one who bears your sorrow. But this morning, rejoice that this Jesus has triumphed. That the angel was right when he said he is not here, for he is risen. But finally, every one of you needs to be able to answer the question that Jesus asked Martha in verse 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even if they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And we all must answer, do I believe this? Let me close this in prayer this morning.
Dear God, I thank you for Jesus, who is the truth. And thus, all that he says is definitively true. We listen to this word today knowing that he is the resurrection and the life. Give us faith to believe. Lord, I thank you that Jesus bore tears. That we can know that when we're at that moment of despondent grief, that Jesus wept because he loves us. But Lord, I thank you that his love was much more than mere sentimentality. Much more than just empty phrases of it'll get better. No, no. He actually triumphed over the enemy of sin and death. Lord, help us to behold our hero who has risen and remains alive, calling to anyone who will believe in him that he will grant them the life that can never be lost, eternal life. But each one of us must respond. We could be like Caiaphas and we could try to just maneuver our own life. We could be like the Pharisees and try to hostily get rid of Jesus. Or we can be like a lot of the crowd and just ignore Jesus. Or this morning, we spiritually can come to new life like when you called Lazarus. So God, call people now to the life that your son provides, the resurrection and the life. In his name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.